0: you'll turn in your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to read verses 10 through 20 as we continue in our spiritual warfare series. And I'm, I'm hoping the, mo- the more we talk about this, um, again, you just see how, how mundane and ordinary is, is our struggle um, against evil within us and evil outside of us. And so we're, we're going to look at the armor of God and see what we are equipped with in our battles against that particular evil, so we'll be here this week and, and next week. And yeah, if you have any questions, because I know where I'm coming and approaching this topic from a very particular Presbyterian, I think biblical, but um, perspective perspective. Um, but if you have questions as you're wrestling with these things, right, that's what the, the elders are here. We, that's what the church is for is to, uh, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior and how these things work together. But let's, let's read the text and pray. This is the word of our God. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And this is God's word. He has spoken to us today in love. His word is true and trustworthy. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, you alone can tame the wildness in the self-centeredness of our hearts. And so I pray that you would help us this morning to grow in our confidence in Christ that we would see what it means to be to put on the armor of God, to be armed with the armor of the gospel. And so as we do that, Lord, I pray you would give us the grace to love what you command, to desire what you promise so that we might participate in the works of your kingdom of making Christ known uh, in our hearts, in the church, and around the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yep. History has no shortage of motivational speeches to inspire ordinary people uh, to get off the proverbial couch and participate in the battle, to participate in the struggle uh, that they're facing, right? So you can, you can think of uh, the Bra- Braveheart speech, William Wallace. And there's a fictional one you know that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom, and all these grown men in kilts right run and, and fight the Brits for their freedom. Um, you, know, you can think of Winston Churchill. I'm not going to try and do any impressions here, so i was <laughs> um, you know, saying we're going to defend every last part of our island. we will defend our beaches. We will never, ever surrender. right one of my favorites is of course from Lord of the Rings at the end in the films, right, when, when Aragorn has the armies of men and they're facing the Black Gate and they're surrounded by an army that's bigger than they could ever handle on their own. And there's no hope of military victory. Their, their only goal is to distract the evil one so that small Frodo can, can destroy the ring. And the speech is he's looking at all these men, all these soldiers afraid, says, sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but not this day. <laughs> An hour of wolves and shattered shields when eight, the age of men comes crashing down, but it is not this day. Today, This day we fight. And by all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. And they don't don't run. They stand firm. They attack the enemy. They draw swords. See, start there because when you read the armor of God, it's it's a metaphor. It's an image designed to have that rallying effect for the church. Uh, That it's meant to be stirring. It's meant to grab a hold of your hearts. It's meant... To, to give you a really clear glimpse of the power you have as a Christian to be strong in the Lord, to see the magnitude of what you've been given in Christ. All right, so, Pastor Martin Lloyd Jones would say it's a stirring call to battle. Do you not hear the bugle and the trumpet? <laughs> we're being roused, we're being stimulated, we're being set upon our feet. The whole tone, tone is martial, it's strong, right? it's rallying the church. Take up the armor of God so you can withstand evil and withstand in the evil day. And so this morning, just by way of introduction to the armor of God, let's ask the question, how does Paul, use this metaphor of armor, get the church off the spiritual sidelines, so to speak, and to, to join the battle, to, join, to participate in spiritual warfare, to want to wrestle against the darkness, um, To participate in the work of the church, to participate in the battle against sin and self, everything he's already written about in Ephesians. And so, how does it get us off the sidelines? And we're going to see there's a call to action, there's a call to wrestle, and a call to receive. Let's look at the the call to action, right? I think J.C. Ryle. Describe, he's a, an old British um, bishop, and he was a pastor. I think I, at one point I had a lot of his commentaries. You can find stuff online. But he really pointedly, a long time ago, described the problem, that I think, that faces the church in every generation. Right? He says there are thousands of men and women who go to chapels and churches every Sundays. They call themselves Christians. They have a Christian marriage ceremony right? They've been baptized in the church. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die, but if you look at them, it seems like there's no fight to their faith, no fight to their religion, right? Of a spiritual strife, of effort, right? Just trying, of conflict, of self-denial, of watching and warring. They literally know nothing at all, and his evidence that he lays out, he says, well, they... they these, Folks eat, they drink, they go to work, they, they, they gain money, they spend money, they live like everyone else the rest of the week, except for goat. the only difference is, is they go to some religious services, maybe even twice a week, but it's watchings, it's strugglings, the anxieties that come with spiritual warfare, of participating in the life of the church. So many just don't know, Right? He's really pointed. He's asking a really good question that Paul is trying to rally the church to do. Is everyone, right? This is addressed to the church. This is a communal letter. Are you an observer in the ministry of the gospel, or are you an active participant as you are able? Right. Because this is a call to action. Paul says, be strong in the Lord, put on the armor of God, so that you may withstand the schemes of the devil. Right? So there, we're up against something. So maybe some context will help. Do you, what do you know about the Ephesian church? You know, if, you, if you read Acts 19, we get a little bit of history. Right? And we learn from Acts 19 that Paul spent several years, at least a couple years, teaching in Ephesus, uh, he tried in the synagogues, they, they stopped listening, so he had a public place where every day he was able to, to use the scriptures, point people to Jesus, and the church started to grow. And the effect of Paul's preaching in this place was massive cultural change. Um, so the, this, is, this is Artemis country. This is the, the, the city of Artemis, and it was one of the, the wonders of the ancient world of this massive statue and, and, and just how the business and religion and life all revolved around this goddess Artemis. Right? And so people who used to spend their money and their time with Artemis as the center of attention, like everyone else, are now following Jesus. <laughs> People who would spend mo- their money on idols <laughs> are now spending their money in the church. Uh, they, they, they're no longer investing in idol worship. All right, and so the idea is that, that the gospel was bringing change to Ephesus, and it was actually hitting the local businesses uh, where it hurt them, in their wallets. In uh, one, one place, it says at one point, Christians got together, and they, they brought their idols, they brought things that were associated with the magic arts as well as books that were valued at 50,000 pieces of silver and they burned them publicly. Right? I mean that'd be like us going down to Wiswell Park in Bolton Spa and publicly destroying four to five million dollars worth of something that is harming the community. Or it could be even more than four to five million, right? If if a silver piece refers to a talent, that's a year's wages. So then we're talking about billions of dollars. But the point is, right, the church has met Jesus and they've been changed. Right? And and when you meet Jesus, it changes what you value, it changes what you spend your money on, it changes what you believe is good for the community. Right? So it's not telling us to go burn all this or old stuff, right? Just side note, this is history, not, not commanding. But what happens is a guy named Demetrius, who makes a living by selling idol-worshiping stuff, uh, he's a silversmith, he's angry. He's saying, we're going to lose worship of Artemis here and across the world, and he incites a riot. People get rowdy. There's a whole crowd, and, and they're just furious, ready to come after the church. And a, At one point, a Jew named Alexander stands up, and the effect of seeing a Jew who's connected to the church incited a two-hour-long chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Right? Knowing our public conversation about things that people disagree on the Bible, it's not too hard to imagine a massive protest against Christians, right? because they have different values. And so... This puts our, I think this helps gives a little context to the armor of God. What is the, the church at Ephesus to whom Paul is saying put on the armor of God? They aren't people who have cultural power. They are people where public faith in Jesus is deemed a threat to the common good. They're being written to by Paul who is in prison for his faith. Biblical values are seen as harmful to the community and to the world. And Paul says to this church who feels very weak, right, surrounded by skepticism and open hostility, join the battle. Right? Don't be ashamed of the gospel as you follow Christ. Right? And so this is, this is where the call to action comes. I think it's really pointed for us in our, in our modern, modern context just because we are weak and small as a church, um, it doesn't stop the work of the gospel from being God's power to bring change to families, to communities, to counties, to the world. Right? And so the call to action is, is there any sense of desire to participate, uh, t- to want to wrestle, to want to struggle, a willingness to, to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Right? And so if you were to use Paul's letter to the Ephesians to evaluate that question, right, do you pray with anyone else in the church? How's your prayer life? Because we're wrestling against, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. And he tells us to pray at all times for all the saints. Right? Do you care about doctrine? Uh, do you know Jesus well enough to have attained the maturity of faith so that you're not carried to and fro by every wind of doctrine that culture throws at you, where you're not intimidated when somebody says something unbiblical. Right? And if you know the scriptures and, and sound doctrine, are you willing to help participate in the process to help others mature? Right? In other words, right, is Jesus Christ crucified, is he... A garnish on the side, right? Something we do for this little brief period of time. Or do we put on the armor and step out during the week fully conscious of who we are in Christ? If you're in a battle, you don't leave home without your sword and shield. Paul, if this armor of God metaphor is not unique uh, in the New Testament, Paul will say in 1 Timothy 6, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Um, Jesus describes the kingdom of God as as something that comes violently. Uh, People suffer violence in order to enter in. It could also mean that it it takes the violent to actually enter in because you have to make such massive change. Uh, The letter of the Hebrews says, strive, right? Be diligent, work really hard, persevere like you're in a marathon. Uh, to enter God's rest. To Paul will say, train like a disciplined athlete. Be willing to beat your body into shape for Christ's sake. To make him known, to be willing, as Paul would say, I, I was willing to be all things to all people so that some might come to faith in Jesus. And I think the most graphic picture comes from Jesus himself. Peter, on you, on your confession, I should say, uh, I will build your the rock, and I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and you know you know how that portrays the church it 's the church militant moving forward, storming the gates of hell, not being under attack, going on the offensive as we preach Christ crucified god 's love for the world across the street and around the world, and so this is the the call to action with the metaphor of putting on the full armor of God so that you all may be be able to stand, right? It's, in verse 11, you need to insert a southern y'all in there. It's you plural. It's written to the church. This isn't um, right. the pastor by himself standing alone in a valley um, fighting the evil one by himself and everybody in their isolated corners of the world fighting their own skirmishes so to speak it's it's designed to to say no the church y'all right we are (laughs) we are a a platoon of eager infantry willing to follow christ to go where he commands ready to stand firm and join the fight we're called to do this together as anyone knows who's ever studied any kind of warfare or uh, had the unfortunate experience of being in a battle, if you're on your own, you get picked off. You're stronger together. Right? And so this is a call to action. <laughs> That's what the metaphor is calling us. The second, uh, we have a call to wrestle against the darkness here. Right? We're to put on the armor of God so that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, all right? Now, you might be saying, as many of our secular neighbors do, is I do not like to connect religion and imagery from, from warfare, right. Some people get really skittish because of real atrocities that are still happening all over the world, all right? Or maybe they're saying, I'm not a violent person, all right? There's a couple things to think about as it's calling us to wrestle here to join the conflict. One, this is the story of the whole Bible. Right? This isn't Paul using warfare imagery is is nothing new. It actually starts on page 2. The moment evil enters the world through the serpent and through temptation. Right? If you you read Genesis 3:15 and and this is after Adam and Eve had, eaten, had to eaten the fruit. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, there's going to be two families of faith, and they're not going to get along because of who they belong to and who they imitate. Right? The family of God versus the family of the evil one. And then even further, you have the foreshadowing of the cross in the first gospel proclaimed when it says that uh, a particular son of Eve will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. It's a a particular human promised by God to give a crushing death blow to evil through his own suffering at, at the hands of the offspring of the evil one a bruised heel, right? So the, the, the message, if we're going to be honest about the whole Bible, and by experience, right? You cannot avoid conflict if you live in this world, right? And in Genesis 3, right, we see that the fight is not just against flesh and blood, right? What, what needs defeated? Evil outside of us, the serpent, and right? So that. That's where Paul's getting some of these ideas here. And in fact, it's not even as bleak. It's, it's more challenging because the further you get into Genesis, it's not just black and white, the good guys versus the bad guys in the conflict. Right? When you read Genesis, and especially when you get to Jacob, you see that the way of the serpent, the patterns of evil, are infecting God's family as well. He has to save them by grace. I mean Jacob, whose name means the deceiver, the heel grabber, he's described as a as a serpentine kind of guy. He's, He's shady. You wouldn't trust him. God had to haunt him and hunt him down with his grace. Which again highlights what Paul is saying. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, the authorities, these cosmic powers, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If you're really anxious about the warfare imagery, look and listen carefully to who Paul says to aim your effort at. We have to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The violent discipline of the gospel isn't aimed at other humans. It's aimed at these evil powers. I mean think about it this way look at look at Jesus as he's facing his death on the cross right he's he's been unjustly tried he is he is by all means right the victim of injustice he went through a kangaroo court what does he say about those who have been he knows he's under assault by the evil evil one but what is how does he describe the people who are killing him Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Judas, who we're told in the scriptures, was, was incited by the evil one, partnering with his desires for money and greed. Right? When, when Judas comes to the Garden of Gethsemane to point out that Jesus is the one to be arrested, you know how Jesus talks to him? He says, friend, do what you've come to do. So Think about all the conflict in your life. Who do you tend to blame? What solutions do you tend to look for? We we tend to look for flesh, flesh and blood type solutions. All right? We're we're great. I'm great at complaining about flesh and blood, all those people and people and politicians and whatever else you know. I'm just grumpy about at the moment. Right? They're they're the reason why my life is so hard. Paul doesn't let us do that. Right, I mean, we tend to think if we get the right person, the right laws, the right strategies, or get rid of the wrong person, cancel them, cancel their ideas. If you only aim at human solutions, flesh and blood, according to Paul, you're, you're being simplistic. You're being naive. Right, I mean, you, can, you can look at division when it hits the church. You can look at moral failure when somebody falls as a Christian. You can look at people who have been actively wounded by, by leaders in the past. People who should know better, right, by pastors. Uh, you can look at those who started out as faithful Christians, who found a great idea online, and now all of a sudden they're questioning the authority of the scriptures and, and are ready to throw out the whole thing because they got blown away by some kind of false teaching. These are schemes of the evil one. Right? Working themselves out through the desires of fallen sinners. That's what we looked at last week in Ephesians 2. Now I think what the church is called to do here is to pray against the powers of darkness against the evil one while praying for people. Right? Pray against the evil powers and pray for people. That's how, that's how the gospel works. Right. God doesn't come down and, and blast all the evil. He ministers to people. Right. You see the nuance? Right. When we sang last week, lead on, O King Eternal, right? again, another stirring uh, Christian warfare hymn. Lead on, O King Eternal, that's Jesus. Till sin's fierce war shall cease and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. How does, how does the gospel go forward? Not with swords loud crashing, nor the roll of stirring drums. With deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Oppose sin for people. And so this is the call to wrestle, in particular against the spiritual forces of evil. And don't go any further than what Paul does. We just know there are spiritual forces out there. And the way it works out is so often through our twisted desires, through our lack of willingness to fight. And anyone and everyone is vulnerable <laughs> to giving in to what they want. And so we have to wrestle. We have to fight. And because we r- do not wrestle against humans, against flesh and blood, we can't fight the way the world fights, which is why we need the armor of God. Right. And so we have a call to action. We have a call to wrestle against evil. We also have a call to receive. Right? And Paul says here's here's what you're up against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And we, there's just whole systems and structures and. And even in the mysterious ways that evil works, uh, we have glimpses of it, like in the life of Job, where all of a sudden Satan is in God's throne room accusing. So what's he doing there? We don't know, but he's there accusing. Right? In other words, there's, there's fallen evil beings that are opposed to Christ and his kingdom. So what do we know about them and how this works? And this is where it gets practical. All right. What do we know about... The cosmic powers, right? We know that Satan is the ruler of this world. We know from the way the Gospels talk, the way the Old Testament talks about spiritual powers, there are fallen angels who work to make life miserable for human beings, even as they incite us to give in to our base desires. Tempting. But what we're told here is these cosmic powers... And the evil one, in particular, he has schemes and strategies. And so, how do these work? Right? We have hints. Look at uh, chapter four, verse fourteen, about the schemes of the devil. So, if you turn the page back a couple pages, right, where it's in this whole section about why, about building unity in the church, uh, why God gives the church apostles and teachers and shepherds. Evangelists to to equip the church. And then in verse 13, the the purpose is to attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So you you hear the language. Crafting, cunning, deceitful, all these different ways that the serpents describe. So, part of what we are up against as a church is the spiritual forces of evil do not want you to know Jesus as he is. We keep saying this. Right? They're against you maturing in your faith, against you getting true knowledge of Jesus. The evil one would much rather you languish in guilt and wonder if Jesus still cares about you after you fail than for you to to see Jesus the compassionate friend of sinners. Or on the other side, right, the spiritual forces of evil would much rather you believe in in a God who never corrects you, who never rebukes you, who never says you're doing this wrong, that wants you to prefer mercy over justice. Because you you think Jesus, he's gentle, he's meek, he's mild. Now part of what this, one of the schemes of the devil in Ephesians is that we can be deceived by false ideas about Jesus and the only way to protect yourself against falsehood is to know the truth. So put on the belt of truth, so you're not persuaded. So where you're so attuned to, I need to hear the gospel, I need to hear that God loves me, and it's a gift of grace, and I can't fix myself unless I have the Holy Spirit. You know All these different great teaching tools that give you a lens, a framework to say, you know, they may be quoting the Bible, but it's not really true and helpful. Anyone can take anything out of context. All right. So deceitful schemes. There's uh, one, one thing we have to be on guard against. Uh, anger is another part of the scheme of the evil one. Anger in the context of, of a faith community, because we are in Ephesians 4. Right? In Ephesians 4.25, it says, we are members with one another. Right? So we're, we're family, we're, we're the body of Christ. And then he says, be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the devil get a foothold. In other words, spiritual warfare means we have to actively fight against the things that would destroy the peace of the church, including our minor and major irritations with each other. Anything that would ruin the fellowship and friendship that we have in Christ. Right? You know, one of one of the great tools of the evil one can actually be the members inside the church. C.S. Lewis put this really poignantly in the Screwtape Letters. You know the Screwtape Letters, it's an imaginary, right? This is fiction, this is not Bible, so temper your imagination. <laughs> but it's imagining a senior demon mentoring a younger demon to say, here's how you torment and, and deceive and, and harass this new Christian. How do you prevent them from making progress? He says, you know what? Show the Christian who's really excited about Jesus' love when he gets to the church for the first time. Show him all the people he used to avoid because he found them annoying. (laughs) Make him focus on Christians that sing out of tune or boots that squeak or, I guess we would say, cell phones that keep going off in the middle of the service. Uh, or a double chin, or odd clothes, or they smell funny, or, you know, you just go, go on and on down the list. In other words, he says, the way you provoke this Christian to unbelief is use the sins and quirks of your fellow Christians to inflame their pride so they get angry. Right? And it, what it does, it says, takes the gospel truth, you are the body of Christ, this is your family. These are the people for whom Christ died. And then the scheme, show how annoying they can be. <laughs> right? Get, them to, get Christians to boast in anything other than the cross rather than the grace they've received through faith. Right? Our pride can deceive us. So don't give the devil a foothold with our anger. That's just one plan and, and plot and scheme in, in Ephesians. Right? And it's, there's one other that we'll talk about today and we'll get into the rest next week. Um, the flaming darts of the evil one in chapter 6. Right? Verse 16, In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. What are these flaming darts that requires to pick up a shield of faith? Well, in the scriptures in particular fiery darts or arrows coming at Christians often are words and lies from other people that's Psalm 120 in particular it's the way it's the way the evil one can use the words of another person to wound you and me I mean think about how many words you've heard in your lifetime out of the Thousands of conversations we've had and will have, right? And yet for everybody I think can point to particular words that are still stuck in our hearts like a flaming arrow that's still burning and hurting and harming, Causing bitterness, causing anger, causing lack of forgiveness, causing irritation, causing lack of trust. It doesn't even have to be words spoken yesterday. It could be decades ago, and yet they still haunt. Right? Fiery darts of the evil one. You know, lies, gossip, slander, experiencing our reputation being destroyed by untruth. Right? These are fiery darts. You have to pick up the shield of faith and trust God to be your defense. You know, those who f- believe, who are believing the gospel, would say things like, "Forgive us our debts, Lord, as we forgive others." Right? These flaming darts from the evil one often come at us in the form of guilt and shame, not just words. Right? Satan, by nature, is an accuser. Uh, that's what Satan means, right? And so, Revelation twelve will describe him, um, the accuser of the brothers and sisters. He's now thrown down. He's been defeated. He's no longer, but, but he accuses Christians night and day before the Lord. Right. In other words, the accuser comes to you through his through the spiritual forces of darkness. Says you a Christian? Have you read your resume? <laughs> have you seen their internet history? Have you played back the recording of everything they've said? You know the words that have come out of their mouth. Or even, a lot of times, uh, the fiery darts are flung at ourselves by ourselves. Right? I should be better. I'm the worst. I suck. You know, there was a Cuban refugee, if I remember correctly, who was stuck in prison in Cuba, and he said while he was in Cuba, he um, he spent all his time talking to cockroaches because yeah, we have a lot in common. Right? It's a shame. fiery darts of the evil one love to condemn tear down and destroy and he's more than happy to partner with our inner desires to be perfect outside of Christ's help to make ourselves feel bad now what what we have well we'll, let's look at Zechariah chapter 3 and this will bring us to a close Zechariah is in one of the Old Testament prophets. We get a glimpse of how Satan accuses. If you can't find it, use the table of contents. Because I don't know what it is in the pew Bible off the top of my head. Um, After Zephaniah and Haggai, if that helps. You're given a glimpse in the, the, the heavenly places that Paul keeps talking about. And you have Joshua, the high priest, he's standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is there accusing, standing at the right hand of the angel of the Lord. And then it says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. So you got the picture. Here's Joshua, he's the high priest, he's the representative of all of sinful Israel, and the one who's supposed, right, we would say should be the best of us. If you want someone to go into a holy God and and speak to your defense, you you want him to to be legit. You want him to, to be good, to be good enough, to be a righteous representative in God's presence. For him to have the right to stand there in God's presence. And it turns out that Joshua, the high priest, has plenty to accuse and condemn. Because he's standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Satan isn't doing anything other than saying, look, look at him, look at his record, look at his clothes. You know, and the filthy clothes is a way of showing all the, you know, despite all the good things he's done, despite all of the religious uh, rituals he's led, it doesn't take away the stain of guilt and shame. And so Satan's there accusing, saying he doesn't belong here, he's filthy, he's unclean. He's unfit. And so the the Lord responds, Lord, rebuke you, O Satan. Is he not a brand plucked from fire? It's the portrait of of a stick destined to burn up in judgment. He's been saved from God's judgment. And then you get to see God's grace in action. He goes to fight for Joshua. And the angel says, Remove his filthy garments. And the Lord tells Joshua, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you in pure vestments, pure clothing. All right, and, and what Zechariah says is what God did for Joshua the high priest, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do for Israel, for all my people. Because right, it says later in, in, in chapter three, in verses eight and nine. I'm going to send a branch, a king, who's going to remove the iniquity of Israel in a single day. All of our guilt, all of our shame. It's going to do for Israel what God did for Joshua. Going to make Israel unaccusable in God's eyes, in God's presence. All right. And so here's, here's what that does for us. Right. We have a better Joshua. Jesus. It's the same name, Yeshua. A better high priest. And in order to make us unaccusable, what did he do? He became sin as one who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God to cleanse us, to remove our iniquity, to remove any ammunition that the evil one has to accuse us. Right? You get that in Ephesians 6, we have the breastplate of righteousness, we have the shield of faith to extinguish these fiery darts of guilt and shame that are continually t- to tear us down. But if you're wearing the armor of God, you're protected because you have Christ defending you, the one who loves you, the one who gave himself up for you. Right? And now, this goes back to last week, What's the effect of Jesus becoming sin so that we might becoming the righteous, become the righteousness of God? When he was raised from the dead and seated at God's right hand, it says we are seated with him in the heavenly places. So where is Satan going to go to accuse you? Who can, he, who can he appeal to if justice has been paid? Who will bring a charge against God's elect, Paul will say in Romans 8? It's God who justifies no one can condemn. No, we, we stand, because of the gospel, unaccusable legally in God's eyes because of what Christ has done. Do you believe that? That's an act of spiritual warfare. Right? And so as a church, we have this call to action to be the church militant, uh, to, to participate in, in these battles, to wrestle with our guilt and shame and to wrestle with the guilt and shame of our neighbor, and say, you're, you're not trusting Jesus right now. You're telling me that God hates you, and you're not listening to the evidence. Right? There is no condemnation right now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? We're, we're called to wrestle. We need the armor of God to fight, and this is, this, this is what we're going to look at next week. Where, as Christians, do you receive truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the Holy Spirit. Where do you get that from? Where's Paul getting this metaphor from? He's, he's just using armor to say, look at what you've been given in Christ. Look at what you've received through faith alone. Right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your doing, it's the gift of God. It's just as true with the armor that God gives you to equip you for the journey of faith. The journey that we take together. Now the, this is armor we receive. Before we ever put it on. So have you received the armor? God is equipping us for the battle. with the light, By giving us the life, death and resurrection. And ascension of his son Jesus. It's his armor we wear. Right? Don't look at a Roman soldier. And say this is me. Decked out in. In military armor, you're supposed to imagine first Jesus, the King of Kings, the the divine Messiah, our captain, our Lord, who comes in power wearing the armor of God Himself to pluck us as a brand from the fire, to plunder us from the house of the evil one. Imagine the Lord God Himself coming to right all that is wrong, beginning with His church, whom He loves. That's our armor. Let's pray. Our Father, and our God, I pray for us as a church that you would motivate us to believe the gospel, to see Jesus, and to be, to be equipped to do the good works that you've called us to do. And so I pray that you would help us put on the belt of truth to know Jesus as he is, to take up the shield of faith, to trust that you are our shield and our defender, uh, to trust that your word has the power to, to change people. Uh, it's the sword of the Spirit able to discern and, and, and split even the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And we have the Holy Spirit. We don't fight alone. And so I pray you would continue to, to mold us as a church to be, to, be what you, to be the church that you are building, mature in Christ, uh, wearing the armor of God, making Christ known in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's let's sing stand up stand up for Jesus.